With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. We've created a new way to protect you from unpredictable interest rates. Our exclusive Rate Shield approval. First, we lock your interest rate for up to 90 days. Then, if rates go up, your rate stays locked. But if rates go down, your rate drops. Either way, you win. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year fixed rate loans. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Welcome to another episode of Troy Noons is an absolute podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, hello, everyone. Happy uh, Random Big 12 Thursday. Yeah, Random Big 12 Thursday. There's a god-awful Mississippi State-Missouri game nobody's watching. Is that on now? That oh, started already? It, it is on now. Oh, boy. Can't wait to <laughs> for that. the highlights of that 17-3 to game. It's going to be great. Somebody was joking about the real possibility that 4-3 might be the final score. <laughs> no, I, I trust Dak to put up a, a not impressive but plenty to win uh, point total. Because Miss- Missouri's just so bad. Missouri, I think, like, aren't they, like, ranked below, I think they're ranked below Syracuse in, like, F+. plus. They are. What happened to, uh, <laughs> what happened to Matty Mock? Um, aside from getting a mystery suspension for almost the whole year, um, he, I mean, he was good two years ago. Last year he was pretty terrible, and this year he was pretty terrible. I don't know. Matty Mock's a mystery for, like, a thousand reasons. Yeah, I, uh, Missouri, and, like, it's funny because I feel like Granted, two division titles are, are, are something to to champion. Like, how many division titles did Missouri win in the Big Twelve? Is the uh, answer, is the answer one? I will let you know in a, a second. Um, but probably, I mean, how long did they have divisions in the Big Twelve? Uh, fifteen years, I think. It was that long. Missouri had three Big Twelve North titles: oh uh, seven, oh eight, and twenty ten. So, um. Some, eh. some prime Blaine Gabbert uh, real estate there, I think. So actually, when you think about it, Missouri, in, in since divisional play became popularized in the early 90s, Missouri might be one of the better teams in the country <laughs> when it comes to winning divisions. Yeah, well, because they, they, they always put in the, in the worst one. Because well, who was in true. the Big 12 North for, for that stretch? I, I don't even remember how it was broken down. Like, uh, oh, Nebraska, like, Nebraska, and Colorado, and Kansas State. Yeah, but this State. was this was like Callahan, Nebraska. Oh really. yeah, that's true. You, you had you had the <laughs> tail end of 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 Prince, uh, K State. You had Callahan, Kansas, Nebraska. Which I guess Kansas was better than some some of those other teams for like a a, a minute there. There was that insane um, 2007 season that featured KU and Mizzou with national title uh, implications. R.I.P. That rivalry, oh, um, more more for hoops, uh, yeah, and Colorado and and oh god, not not the Big Twelve North, not the uh, not the sexiest group of teams. Iowa State, I'm guessing, was in the Big Twelve North. 
I, I would get actually wait, Wikipedia says they didn't win in two thousand ten. Really? Um I'm see Missouri? That's I mean that's what Wikipedia, Wikipedia could be wrong. A Nebraska fan could have hijacked they, this thing. They, <laughs> Nebraska and they I guess Nebraska probably won the head to head and went to the title. Oh, there you but go. they technically split the uh I guess technically because they both have the same conference record, they mm-hmm. split it. See, but, uh, like I, I would, to beat them. I would contend that like in the last decade, Missouri's probably won more division titles than like almost every team in the country. Uh, aside from, I'm I'm sure Florida got a, a lot in the last uh, ten years, though. Well, let's look. <laughs> look just the last decade of football. I Missouri's probably. Alabama, maybe, but like here, here's here's how you know the difference between Missouri and Florida football, like on a grander scale. Uh, Missouri's sidebar on Wikipedia does list their uh, division titles, and Florida's does not. So <laughs> I have to go digging a little bit more here um, for yearly stuff. Well, let's see. Alabama's in the last decade. Alabama's won four division titles. So if you, if we're not taking the bogus tie, so they and Mizzou are tied. Yeah, tied, tied's um, dead even with Missouri. And then Pac-12 hasn't had them long enough. Big Ten hasn't either. Um, all right, so Florida has won the Pac- the big. Hold on, the SEC. They're on. Good lord, the SEC East. Uh, in since two. What's what's the metric we're going by here? Well, I think we're going since '05. Since 05, they won it outright three times. Hmm. 06, 08, 09. And, yeah. George's, and then this year, they're going to win it again. So. There you go. George's got three. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so. Dr. Line <laughs> out one of those. Missouri and Alabama are the two most successful teams in, uh, in the last decade of divisional college football play. Yeah, because the Big Ten doesn't have hasn't had it long enough. Because they just got to the they just switched to the divisions when they went uh, what uh, leaders and legends for a year. That said, Wisconsin's probably got at least two. Sounds right. Georgia. Oh, uh, we forgot the ACC. That was awful, actually. <laughs> does anyone have enough? Like, I mean, I guess Florida State is a bunch. Florida State, Florida State, and Virginia Tech are probably up there. Yeah, because the coastal kind of rotates around teams not named Miami. So, yeah, Florida State since oh yeah, Florida State since '05 when which is the first year, Florida State's won the whole thing four times. They've been there five. Virginia Tech has been there five times, won it twice. Okay, so ACC teams by default they're just better because there's only like four of them that actually <laughs> yes. get into ACC teams. teams are always better than SEC <laughs> and twelve. And Big Ten and Pac-12. That's just that's just a fact. We all know it. Um, anything to the contrary is SEC, ESPN media bias. <laughs> Am I doing this right? Uh, yes, that's exactly what you <laughs> All right. So while I was typing something on Slack about Charlie Loeb, as one does... <laughs> We're uh, we're talking about Syracuse football. Uh, talking about the Cuse. Surprisingly to most, it is almost seven minutes in, and we have yet to mention the Orange. But um, here we are. Uh, SU's three and five. That's unfortunate. I don't really think we expected to be four and four today anyway. 
uh, at least as of the last podcast. I don't think that was something that was really on the board um, as an opportunity, but just the same. Uh, bummer to see how it happened. Um, obviously, we, we discussed this all around Slack in the comments section, that it, it just sucked to, to see a team that, that looked like they had a they were kind of hanging around the beginning of the game. To see them just get kind of laid to waste in the second half, um, real depressing. Dan, what, what would you say was the biggest problem for you starting, let's go with about midway through the second quarter? Oh, midway through the second quarter? So that doesn't count Travis Rudolph looking like... Uh, no. Yeah, no, okay. No, no. <laughs> not, to, not to belabor that. Um, obviously, there's the clock stuff which is just an ongoing uh, storyline that I wish the writers uh, of the ACC would get off of. Um, I just think, like, in general, the tackling has been suspect all year. And ob- obviously Florida State has really good athletes, but like we caught the most vulnerable Florida State will ever be, and we made them look you very know, good. About- <laughs> we made them look very good. We-, we actually have started a quarterback controversy in Tallahassee, so... That's probably not the best thing we could have done, considering, you know, uh, Sean McGuire apparently was, um, I don't know, the coaches seem to think Sean McGuire is, like, way better than Everett Dolson, which maybe, but, for, you know, I trust Jimbo Fisher's judgment on that more than I trust uh, Bullas. And, and, but I, I guess I, I, I understand it from the, from the point that uh, Sean McGuire just absolutely lit up Syracuse, and it was only his second start in his career and looked like a three-year vet. So, um, yeah, that's a concern. You, you think when you have uh, a team going without its quarterback who hasn't been great but has been, you know, pretty pretty decent game managery uh, all year and without the running back who is really should be getting more uh, Heisman buzz. The only reason he's not is his Leonard Fournette devours worlds uh, at the same position. But Dalvin Tart's probably been one of the five best players in college football this year, easily. Um, so neither of those guys play, and Florida State looks just as good or better than you could have expected. So, um, yeah, not great. Not that we expected to win, but we expected it to be a pretty competitive game if you listened last week, and it really wasn't after, like, midway through the third quarter. Yeah, and, and you know what? Like, the, the, the time stuff sucks. The squib kick stuff sucks. I, I think that what really killed me, though, is just once again for the third straight game, you know, SU's offense didn't score a touchdown in the second half. Um, it, it's frustrating to see a team that just bogs itself down. I know I dove into some of it in the, in the play-calling breakdown. Um, people were quick to kind of point out Dungy had a poor game, you know, after the first watch. And, and, and you know what, I bought in, and I know that, like, this isn't even to, to start talking shit. I, I think that a lot of people had some questions about Dungy. I mean, even Sean said, you know, in the in the first recap out of three that we had up on the site after the game, that like you know this was Dungy's first like bad game. You look at that replay though. I mean, yes, there were things he could have done better. There's always things that every quarterback could have done better. Dungy really couldn't have done much more though, given what he was handed. Um, and and considering that like what the final result was, I mean, what was he like? I think it was like 11 of 23 um, with a fumble. Um, I think less than 150 yards at the. All in all, he didn't really do anything to hurt the team. Um, and, and I think that that's what... I don't want to sound like you know, a dungy apologist. It's just more of a... You, you watch what he does and, and the decisions he makes, and you, you saw him trying to make the same quick reads, and he simply couldn't do it. 
Um, and it wasn't because of a lack of ability. It was because of a lack of who was, who was out there and who was available um, to get passes to. I mean, FSU uh, might be the best secondary SUCs all season. I have a feeling Clemson might challenge that um, assessment. But, you know, receivers were blanketed. And you look at the tape from the week before, if they were trying to repeat it, I mean, Dungy pretty much targeted the same four guys over and over again. Um, becomes difficult uh, to do that very same thing if you're just going to, uh, well, if you're going to face a secondary as good as Florida State's is. Yeah, for sure. And obviously, Dungy is going to have games like this. This is probably the first where he really like struggled, even statistically. It wasn't very pretty, uh, although he did have our two only touchdowns. So even even when nothing's going well for Syracuse, like Dungy's still the only guy who is getting any kind of bid production. Um I guess you can say George Morris had a nice game too, which, you know, average nine yards a carry, so that's good. But yeah, uh, the Florida State secondary is very good. Um, our receivers, while have, they have talent, uh, just not on the level where we're going to really be super competitive um, on like a, a one-on-one basis. So you'd, you'd hope that we'd have ways to steam guys open more, but uh, really all around, not not the, the best effort, although um, I am willing to you know, concede that Florida State is Florida State, even on a down a down year compared to what they've been. So maybe not the, uh, you know, end of the world. Obviously, it wasn't 59 to 3, which is good. But um, you'd hope that when a team is as beat up as Florida State is, Syracuse would go and, and at least try to show that they could hang with the, you know, one and a half, uh, like the first slash second teams of a Florida State when things are about as awry as they can go for the Seminoles. And, you know, one team didn't miss a beat, and the other one looked as confused as they have all year. So hopefully it was more of an FSU having talent thing than it was a Syracuse continuing to struggle thing, but I have a feeling it's a little bit from both. Yeah, I think you're very right there. And, you know, I it was something I didn't point out in the, in the long recap that I put up on Saturday evening, but... You know, if you want to look at the margin here, I mean, this is a step back from last season, um, and that's without Jameis Winston's, without a ton of NFL draft picks. Granted, there's a lot more that replaced them, um, but I mean, the final score of this game was truly 45 to 14, not 21, um, and that's not to take away anything from Brisley. I, I, I'd like to find a balance between telling Brisley he did a great job on that return and also chalking it up to garbage time and fatigue. Uh, in general, you know, th- this is a team that, that lost by basically 31. It's a season after they lost, um, you know, by 18. Um, and I think last year we saw it as an improvement. This year, I, I think it was a step back. Um, you know, we allowed almost 600 yards of total offense um, and, and, you know, 400 of those in the first half. Um, FSU didn't really hold the ball any longer than we did. Um, FSU averaged, you know, over nine yards per completion. They averaged six and a half yards per rush, and that was before we even got to garbage time again. I mean, other than those first maybe two drives um, of the game, and then probably uh, that second-to-last FSU drive in, in, the, in the second quarter, um, the Knolls had us figured out, um, and then some. Uh, I think it goes to show, uh, this isn't to, to, to hammer you know, the coaching staff, but more to just say, like, this defense needs to have more more complicated things to it than than just blitz a lot um and i think that that's where you know you're starting to see teams 
not just the, the the FSU's and the Clemson's of the world, but you know the Central Michigans of the world for 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 part of a game, um, the USF's of the world for a full game. Um, figured out this defense pretty easily, uh, and, and that's I think what worries me most of all is if you're going to have your calling card be your defense, um, there's got to be some more nuance to it, and I'm not seeing it right now. Yeah, it makes me wonder if if maybe the scheme after. You know, here in the third year of Bulla, and you know, we we always say it's not that much different than what we saw from Schaefer as defensive coordinator. Uh, makes me wonder if things have kind of gotten stale. Um, the havoc rate uh, this year, um, defensive line's pretty good, secondary's pretty average, but the linebackers, we you know, the linebacking linebacker blitzes have been a staple of this team for a while, and and on paper we have a lot of speed at the position, and we had like five or six guys who. Uh, personally, I thought we're all pretty good players and thought the linebackers would be a strength. But this year, we've seen uh, some issues with tackling. We've seen some some big-time penalties, even from guys like Zaire Franklin, who are you know leaders of the team. And we're just not getting much production from them as blitzers or as disruptive players, which is something I thought you know would be one of the things that allowed this defense to thrive this year. Um, but instead, we have a very, uh, a very exposed middle of the defense, I think, which... Um, most of the heat's gone to the DBs, but I don't think we've gotten a lot of help from uh, the blitzing or the pass rush, um, especially after like the first quarter. I, I feel like uh, to open games, we get after quarterbacks, but um, once the game gets towards the end, I don't know if we just tire out or, or if teams find uh, blocking schemes that work against uh, our specific stunts and everything, but um, we're really struggling to make big plays in the fourth quarter, and I think some of that comes from the linebackers and and the defensive ends not making uh, not sacking the quarterback and that that's something that we've been relying on for a couple of years now. Yeah, I didn't look at the, the the full numbers, but I would assume over the last three weeks, I can only remember maybe three sacks over the last three games or so, maybe four. Um, and, and I think part of that is due to you know just the amount of pressure and stress put on the defensive line. I mean, these guys aren't having bad games. Like Ron Thompson is putting in work. Um, I think you're seeing you know. In general, we're finding ways to, to plug gaps in the middle. It's it's that the linebackers are being asked to do a little too much. They're they're not great in coverage yet. Um, I, I I think that you know Paris Bennett has put in some great work, and it's a shame he'll miss um, he'll miss this game this weekend. But uh, on the positive end, I am looking forward to seeing uh, you know what Thomas does um, in that same spot. I think that he he seemed to put in some great work and relief. Um, granted, it was some of it was garbage time uh, last Saturday, but uh, he's somebody who I've always thought is one of the better athletes on the team and just hasn't really had the playing time uh, granted to him. So I'm curious what he does um, you know, for this Orange team. In general, though, uh, yeah, we're, we're, seeing, we're seeing a lot of pressure put on the, on the front seven and not really enough execution on their end either so i think it, it's not to absolve them of a fault here i think there's definitely some issues with with the scheme and, and, and their talent level uh to be addressed but in general um you know this is the, the this is definitely um something that you know we're gonna have to try to tip the scales in one way or the other either you're gonna be a group that doesn't rush the passer a ton and relies on the secondary you've got to be a group that rushes the passer a ton um, and takes the pressure off the secondary because the, the lack of success in terms of havoc, which is an empty concept for us at this point, 
um, in terms of turnovers uh, is really exposing just the, the entire defense, you know, front to back. Yeah, I'm actually looking up the stats now. It appears that we did not have a sack in the second half of Florida State, and we did not have a sack in the second half of Pitt. Um, and I'm going through the other play-by-plays now. But um, that's not great, uh, because when getting uh, pressure is a mainstay of your defense, when you could just to- totally lose an aspect like that, um, at you know whether it's halftime or just the fourth quarter, uh, that just doesn't work. Uh, especially with, you know, all the very well-documented secondary issues that we've had. Um, it looks like we had a couple sacks against uh, Virginia, but obviously they're not quite the same team as... They had two sacks in the second half against Virginia. Um, I think they were both in the third quarter as well. So even that game could not get a big play uh, down the stretch, and obviously we, we all know how that game ended. So um, definitely something to think about, and I, th- I know depth at defensive... Uh, at, the, on the defensive line is probably part of that issue, but um, I think it's, uh, you know, the whole defense is uh, kind of responsible for that. And uh, hopefully we find some ways to make up for it because right now we're just seeing the the same issues week in and week out, which is uh, not great. Yeah, so uh, that's not good. <laughs> and... I think maybe moving to some positive things. Uh, the Louisville game this Saturday, you know, I, I think we could talk about the Knowles game all day. And yes, that was a subtle talk about the Knowles mention. Um, but what I, I think is going to be tough this coming weekend is, you know, A, who's going to be playing quarterback? I'm pretty sure it's going to be Lamar Jackson. And to me, that that's worrisome, um, especially if he's at close to full strength because we just haven't played well against mobile quarterbacks. Um, especially when you have, you know, a, a linebacker turn defensive end who's who's out um, in, uh, you know, Arseniega, and then you have another, uh, you know, linebacker in Bennett who's out. Um, I'm getting worried about Jackson. Um, I think he's going to be able to, to really tear us up um, in that front. And now that you have, you know, a couple key players um, in that secondary out too, I just think we're starting to get too banged up for our own good, and that's not encouraging for a team that's three and five no no it's it's um definitely not the same injuries that we had last year which were uh obviously we kind of threw through the year out because of them um at least I, I was willing to to kind of dismiss them if this year ended up being a bounce back which to be determined but not looking great um but I, I agree on Jackson. Uh, Florida, I mean, Louisville really hasn't found a quarterback that works consistently. But I think Jackson, you at least know that you have a dynamic runner. And it's not like Reggie Bonifant was so good at uh, throwing the ball that uh, it really makes a huge difference there. So, um, And the Syracuse team, in years past, we've had a penchant for making uh, young quarterbacks look really, really good, uh, especially when we uh, haven't faced them before. Hi, Teddy Bridgewater. So. Well, well turned into an NFL. I get that, but when, <laughs> but I think that what we did, we also beat him. Did we? I thought his first game was. Yeah. I thought his first game was the. Well, we beat him later, but in his yeah. first game against us, was a that was a oh, complete disaster. Was he? He. That remember. was like his second, maybe his second or third game, um, back in 2011. Oh, you might be right. 
Yeah, well, at least we came back and beat him. I'm, I'm thinking of like, yeah, like fully established. BJ Daniels. I'm sure. I'm sure if we um, looked up, I, I'm surprised in my like typical off season and season long like dives into bad shit that happens to us. Like I didn't uncover the how did actually no, I did do this. The how did SU how does SU fare in, against QBs in their first career start? Um, this actually wasn't Bridgewater's first or second start. It was like his, I mean, I don't know if he started all these games before, but he had at least like 18 passes in the five games before that. Uh, but he did beat Syracuse 24, 17. Um, I don't remember too much about the specifics of that game, but, uh, he had two touchdowns, no picks, 198 yards. So I, I try to wash away the, uh, the end to that season. Um, because As after nothing does. happened after the game, we finished with five wins. We finished five and two, so they couldn't send us to a bowl, and that's my story. <laughs> uh, They're like, we really want you to go because you're really good, but we can't because you only played. Yeah, seven we won games. the Fiesta Bowl against West Virginia that season. <laughs> the Fiesta Bowl <laughs> at the Carrier Dome on a Friday. There was a, there was a sandstorm in Phoenix, so they had to keep us. In- <laughs> there were at least multiple most people had to be eating Tostitos at that game, so. Maybe it was the Las Vegas Bowl, because that's all I remember about that game is that I was in Vegas. Oh, good times. I was there. That was a fun game. We thought we were going to go to the BCS. We thought we were legitimately going to the BCS after that. (laughs) Not the national title, but we thought we were winning the Big East and going to, like, the Fiesta Bowl. uh, And that didn't happen. Oh, the things that occurred next. Not not great. No, it was a long off season. But then we went back back into one eight games the next year. Yeah, and it was all good. That was Happier times. So, uh, yeah. Defensively, I think we kind of got covered that we're we're in a rough spot. But but offensively, um, I mean, Dan, w- what's the missing piece here? Uh, I mean, said I, I rewatch the games. I, I have some thoughts on what the missing piece is. To you, what does this team need to do in the second half that, that it either does in the first half or needs to do more of in the second half? I guess, w- what is it that we need to kind of you know, figure out to get this offense um, scoring and, and not just moving the football? Um, part of it's having the ball. Obviously, we cover that all the time. The defense doesn't get off the field. Um, other, otherwise, I, I just think we need to always stay committed to getting the ball into the best uh, players' hands. We just get away from that so often. Um, and we saw some good things uh, in the pit game. And then um, against FSU, I... I I don't know if everyone was just totally locked up, but uh, how many runs did, did Fredericks have? Like, uh, I think he got out touched by multiple people. Um, yeah, I, I, we struggled to get the ball to Irv. So I don't know if this was just FSU taking away everything or um, just us falling back into the trap of trying to spread the ball so much. But when we're only getting like 60 plays a game, which is really low and way below what I believe that the offense wants, um, the fact we, we, we can't like get cute with giving uh, random people touches, um, but like our our, le- our leader in, in receptions was Josh Paris, who I think is pretty good. But no one else, the only other person who had three catches was Irv, uh, and he went for a grand total of negative one yards, and then everyone else on the team had one catch. So like, eventually, you there you there are ways to get your receivers open, even if it's just a few yards down the field, and and 
build up your quarterback's confidence, and we just did not appear to do any of that, um, like we were in the in the beginning of the pit game. So hopefully, just a consistent flow of play calling and you know going back to the things that work um, just seems to be a struggle at times for this team. Yeah, I mean, you know what? I I actually thought that the offensive line did a fantastic job in that game, all things considered. Um, you know, Florida State's obviously got some better athletes out there. And, oh, dear God. Sorry. Interrupting because that Coleman catch was insane. <laughs> yes. Corey Coleman's did a football everywhere. Very. Um, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Um, the offensive line... Uh, really held up pretty well, all things considered. I thought they faced a good amount of pressure. Again, better athletes, more speed on the outside. Um, and overall, I mean, other than that, that you know, two sacks on second and third down um, drive in the third quarter, I believe. Maybe it was the early fourth. Um, SU's line held up pretty well. It's just that there was nobody open. Uh, and I thought that, that that's something that they should definitely be commended for. But yeah, if, if you're having, if you have time to throw, but you're not getting looks, then that's when you're going to run, um, you know, more short patterns, have some more misdirection. I felt like we really didn't use enough of that in particular. Um, and it's something that worked for us a lot in other games is, is a lot of motion, a lot of misdirection, have, you know, multiple guys kind of in short crossing routes. These were things that just, you know, didn't occur. And, and that's how you end up with, you know, Paris catching five passes, um, you know, Phillips getting three balls from negative one. We're looking at, you know, uh, I, I saw one un, unblocked bubble screen. I was going to cry um, as, I, as I recall things of, of, of past teams that none of us want to recall ever again. Um, in, in general, I just didn't think... I didn't think the game plan was tailored to do much but move the ball up and down the field and maybe not score. And maybe that's not just against FSU. Maybe that's just kind of something I've had in the back of my mind for, for weeks now. Um, but Dan, I guess you and I have been shouting for Dante Strickland to get more involved. Um, are you happy with what he's done here? Uh, do you think that, that his emergence and emergence that we kind of saw coming and expected to come, do you think that that changes Ben Lewis's role on this team? Um, I just don't see why they play the same position. I mean, I understand it's kind of a labeling but thing. They're not but the same player. I feel... Yeah, they're so different uh, in terms of their abilities that um, if it changes Ben Lewis's role, it's because Ben Lewis was in the wrong role. Uh, ben Lewis is a nice uh, split uh, blocker out wide, short uh, short pass receiver, um, kind of like a wide receiver tight end hybrid, while Dante Strickland should is more of the Irv Phillips type coming out of the backfield. Um, obviously, I'm happy with him outrunning the FSU uh, defense for a 62-yard gain to set up the first touchdown. Um, but uh, I, do, I would love to see him get more than five touches. Uh, another guy who I understand you have to get Fredericks and Phillips theirs first, uh, and they should be getting more as well. But Strickland, I think, is a guy that, for whatever reason, he he, he seems to have a, a nose for the end zone. He stored an inordinate amount of his touches uh, and came very close against Florida State. I just think he's kind of a game-breaking talent, and the fact that we, it seems like we have him in this like uh, emergency case, and we break him out like once a half for a big play, instead of you know working him into the offense. It's it's like a surprise when he gets the ball, and good things happen at a really high percentage compared to the rest of the team. So, I would love for him to to get on the field more and not be afraid to use him um, as much as 
as we use anyone else. Um, but I think a lot of this still boils down to the team just not getting a lot of plays. Like the offense ha- just just doesn't doesn't get to run enough to really get the amount of touches for everyone that we want. And obviously, some of that's uh, because of defensive struggles. But um, I, I kind of wish we would kind of start hurrying up a little bit more just to manufacture some extra plays because this doesn't seem like an issue that's going away. Right. And you know what? I, I think that that, that kind of hits a nail on the head. We're just not running enough plays. It doesn't seem, I mean, I think we would have had 64 plays or so um, on 14 drives uh, against Florida State. That's just laughable when you look at just, we weren't moving the ball. And when we were, we were moving it very quickly. Um, and it was a con- another conversation that was going on on Slack today was just in general, um, we're doing a lot of, uh, we're having a lot of explosive plays, um, but then we're not countering those with productive plays on top of it. And productive, I'd say, you're looking at like gains in the four to six yard range versus an explosive play, you're looking at 15 yards or more. Um, last year, we saw this even more so where we'd have, you know, 11 to 12 explosive plays, but then we'd also counter that with, you know, a 1.7 yards per play average for the other plays. Um, this year, I think we're sitting around 2.5 four to 2.7 yards per play outside those explosive plays we're still averaging about 12 to 13 explosive plays a game that percentage of the total is larger but the gains aren't larger because we're, we have you know less plays from scrimmage I think a guy like Strickland um, who yeah you know we do kind of keep him under a glass case for an odd reason um, seems like a perfect match I mean he's what he's got three touchdowns on like 12 touches and another one that would have been a touchdown um, he's basically Irv Phillips with another, what, 20 pounds on him and another two inches, and he's super quick. Um, he just really knows how to move um, with the football in his hands, both at the line of scrimmage um, and once he's in open in the open field. I mean, he had some great blocking on that 62-yard reception, but in general, it was, it was his speed and size that was helping him move down the field at a rapid pace and outrunning you know, a very fast FSU secondary. Yeah, he has three touchdowns total on 18 total touches. Um, so that's pretty good. <laughs> like, that's a guy you want to have touched the ball more than three times a game. Um, and he has 174 total yards. So he's averaging a shade under 10 yards every time he t- gets the ball. And obviously that's a small sample size. But why is it a small sample size? Like, why, why aren't we seeing... <laughs> this is crazy. It's It's... It's not like it's one or two plays. It's enough now where you're where you're saying, "Hey, maybe this is a thing that could be a, a trend," but you're not allowing yourself to like to find out. So I don't know. I don't know why he doesn't get the ball more. I don't know. He doesn't even seem to be on the field enough. Um, obviously, I don't have the exact um, like. Uh, I don't have exactly how many plays everyone's getting every game. But, it's, um, but the numbers aren't high all around. And I think we're looking at a team that honestly has the pieces to play with a lot of tempo. And and if we were playing at the same tempo that we were in 2012, and it's not to start bringing up this comparison, but if we were playing with a similar tempo as we were in 2012, this team would be putting up more points. They'd have more touches to go around. We'd have a lot of really, really promising pieces. And we still do. But... This is the type of team that really, really, especially now that Dungy's, you know, getting smarter about when he takes off and when he throws the ball. Um, this is a team with probably four or five guys, at least. I mean, Strickland gets buried for no reason. When Ben Lewis gets back, he'll probably get buried. 
Uh, guy like Jamal Custis, who you know is a freak athlete who we could use in a variety of different roles. All these guys get buried, um, and it, it's it's problematic for us, you know, a, as an offense to have all these pieces that we're not doing anything with because when you only have fifty, sixty plays, you know, they're just you know Dungey's going to run five to seven times. Okay, you know Fredericks needs the ball about ten times at least. Um, handoff. You know that Morris and, and uh, McFarland are usually going to get you know, five to seven combined carries, you already just took up half the half the plays on, on just a few guys. And, and, you know, SU just, if they just play with a little bit more tempo, even just shaving five seconds off, um, you know, plays, oh, just off the play clock in general, you'd, you'd find, you know, an offense that might be a little bit crisper, might get more people involved, that might get more plays and more chances to score. Yep, and and it just like ugh, it's frustrating because I I think we both agree that this offense probably has more potential than what we've seen outside of like 2012. Um, and obviously, youth is a is a factor, and and we have repeatedly have these issues where it seems like the team is confused or or tired or whatever, and that's led to some of the the timeout calls that people have debated from Schaefer. Um, but I I just wish we would say, you know, let's see what happens if we really put the pedal to the floor here and and just start running and let the talent try to win out rather than trying to outsmart people or uh, let the def- trust the defense, whatever that means, uh, that strange platitude that we fall into all the time. Um, I want to see the offense throughout and win games, and for a multitude of reasons, both uh, within and, and beyond our control, we're not allowing that to happen um, when this offense... You know, statistically, it doesn't look all that gaudy, but if you watch it, like it's something's there. It's just not quite hitting the the level in which you you see the light go on and and say, oh, this is something that can be pretty special. It's like it's definitely doesn't have the same issues as last year, where you could see mechanically things were broken. It's just like we can't quite reach that level of apt, uh, that competency where things just roll like they did in 2012, where team. By the halfway through the year, no one can stop the offense. So I feel like we're not that far away, and hopefully we can flip it on, kind of like in 2012 when we were facing a similar. I don't know if we were three and five, but we were in a similar spot in terms of our record. We were four and five before we faced Louisville that year. There we go. Um, so you know, I, I know we've internally had kind of a, some thoughts about comparing these two teams, and obviously that one had a lot of seniors and was in an easier league and all that, but. Um, It'd be nice to see a, 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 a similar midseason turnaround, and some of that was the offense hitting another another gear, simplifying things, um, going to what works more. I, I don't think the the power run game is going to be that like it is uh, like it was that year with Jerome Smith, but um, a, a nice midseason adjustment where we kind of exemplify the things that work best would be a really good thing for this team, and I, I think manufacturing more plays on the field is is part of that so we'll see how things go louisville's a a kind of an interesting opponent because they have their own serious struggles um i'm not sure if they're the the best one to be playing right now but uh with their quarterback issues you know it wouldn't be the craziest thing for sc to go steal one yeah and i would completely agree um but why don't we uh take a little halftime and then uh, a little bit past halftime but still a little halftime a little beer what uh what have you been drinking, Dan? Uh, it's been 
kind of a kind of a mediocre week. Just a lot of what's been around the fridge. So, um, just kind of the standard. Some some a little bit of Southern Tier stuff. Some Captain Lawrence. Uh, nothing I haven't, you know, talked about before at length, so not the most interesting week, although uh, hopefully that starts to turn around a little bit um, as it gets a little cooler and we uh, have, you know, some more trips to the bar now that... It, well, actually, this week it's been kind of warm in the Northeast compared, but it was like 40 a couple of weeks and now it was like 70 yesterday, so once we get back to temperature, I think we'll be kind of indoors a little more and, and a little more drinking time. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, yeah, for me, uh, had some of the first bottles of Duet uh, from Alpine that were uh, brewed at Green Flash. Can't say I'm a fan. Uh, I mean, it's still a good beer. It's just, it's dropped off a bit. Um, I won't go into that whole thing, because especially on the Pacific Forum and Beer Advocate, you, you'll definitely find a lot of uh, a lot of people who have some serious issues with, with Green Flash taking over over at Alpine. Um, some other things that I was drinking. Um, we have Buffalo Bill's American's Original Pumpkin Ale. It's a George Washington's recipe for pumpkin ale. And really, really good stuff. Um, probably one of the better pumpkin beers I've had outside of pumpkin. Uh, I've had... What else? Oh, I was at Smog City, as I find myself at least a couple times. A month. Uh, we had a bony knuckle from them. It was kind of a of a Mexican imperial stout. Really good. Um, had their kumquat saison, uh, which I've had before, but uh, really really enjoyable saison. It kind of almost comes off as sour, which is uh, which is really nice. Um, had Monkish's uh, Oxford Kama. It's a Belgian pale ale and a nice little nod to both the uh, quirky, uh, you know, grammatical comma as well as to vampire weekend for people who are fans of said band and i also had happy birthday from alpine that was also brewed a green flash this time around and yeah didn't really drop off as much as duet but still wasn't a huge fan and plenty to drink this weekend i am sure i hope we start a raging uh, oxford comma debate in the do the it comments. If this was every day, it should be Saturday. The debate would already be fifteen hundred comments long. <laughs> as uh, as Ryan Nanny once said, uh, I forgot. This was like a couple years ago, actually. I don't know why I remember this one fact from a podcast uh, for a shutdown full cast. It was something like, if you left the like if you left the comment section over there alone, they they would be arguing the merits of ketchup on a hot dog for decades. I want. I think that's just the only reason they write any articles anymore. They just need to turn need to turn a new thread over, just so that people can uh, can get out of the like just ridiculousness that occurs in there. I, I try to look every so often, and like I just get lost. There's just too much. Uh, it's totally intimidating, and I I respect anyone who can actually follow what happens in the EDSBS comments beyond like one little like ten comment thread. Yeah, I show up. I show up every so often. I used to be there more. Um, I remember, in particular, there was like one ridiculous. There was there was a couple different ones about sorting sorting Power Five schools into different uh, Hogwarts houses that I actually initiated, and that went for a good seven hundred comments or so. Um, I I'll usually show like I knew I showed up. 
I showed up after Kentucky lost to Wisconsin in the Final Four last year, just because I had I was in the in Indianapolis hotel room. I had nothing else to do, um, so I had some fun with that. I mean, I mean, judging by my knowledge of EDSBS uh, stuff, Syracuse would probably end up in Hufflepuff because of the anti-Syracuse conspiracy. We theory. were in Hufflepuff, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right. Why don't we? Uh, I know we're right now we're both watching Big Twelve football. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about the uh, college football playoff rankings? Uh, SU fans, you should be interested in this in one way or another. Um, I wrote a well, I thought it was entertaining article the other day about uh, a, a very, very, very off chance that SU could find itself in the top twenty-five of said rankings if you know a million different things happened. But spelled it out in, in, in detail, more or less, of how it could occur. But Looking at these opening rankings, uh, Dan, what sticks out to you as the most egregious, not error, because it, it, these rankings don't matter, but w- what's the most egregious just issue or, or nit to pick with, with the committee after, after one week? Um, obviously, everyone's pointing to Alabama being four, and it just doesn't seem like there's real consistency with the... Uh, the reasoning for various things like I, I'm fine with someone thinking Alabama is one of the four best teams in football. They, they very likely are. I just don't get how you put them there now. And, and I'm totally like not getting too worked up about it because the reason they do these rankings every week is because everyone argues about them every week. And it's really good for um, debate and driving discussion about college football, which as a college football writer, I am all for. Uh, so get really worked up, everyone else. I'm happy about that. Um, but no, I, I think the Alabama complaints are pretty legit because I don't, I don't quite get how they justify it. But it, it, whatever. Um, and then on the same same end, TCU is quite low, and you can say TCU's looked sloppy um, here and there, but literally every team in that top like eight has looked sloppy at some point. Like there's not one of those teams that is put together. Uh, a bunch of flawless performances. Um, Ohio State obviously looked like pretty mediocre for half the year until maybe the last two weeks, and now they lost their quarterback, which obviously the uh, committee doesn't seem to care about based on last year, and and they they said that they don't care about it uh, when referring to Seth Russell this year. Um, there are schedule issues with some teams that'll work themselves out as the Big Twelve, you know, starts to get into the meat of what they're doing since they totally backloaded everything in a most comical fashion. Um, otherwise, I mean, I think Clemson's fine at number one. They have uh, a couple of great wins. They've looked pretty dominant for a month. Um, overall, it, you know, it's just always important to remember that they throw these things out the day after every week and strap it and do it all again. So no real use in getting too mad until December, but um, you know, it is what it is. This is going to be how college football goes from here on out. And, the fact that people get really worked up is the exact reason why. Yeah, and you know what? Like, at first I was pissed off about Alabama, but in general, like, what pisses me off isn't the order of well, it is the order of the teams in some ways, but more than that, it's the process and the inconsistency of said process. Um, you know, th- this is that th- they mention the the weather for the Clemson Notre Dame game, which I just felt is like it's not a factor. They, they mention Baylor and TCU's uh, style of play over Iowa's, which shouldn't be a factor if you win. Um, you know, it, it, I'm, and again, others have said this too, but, you know, it, it, it's an infinite feedback loop the way they do things. 
um, th- these rankings are legitimized by themselves because you look at a logic, oh, well, this team lost to the number three team. Like, well, th- that team's the number three team because you said they were. So, like, you, you, there has to be something else that these are based on, and, and any sort of advanced metric would be much, much preferred. I mean, whether it's F plus or uh, Sagarin or w- whatever it is. Um, an RPI-type number would be great to, to take a look at here. Because um, what we have now is, is just a weird... Again, it, it's, a, it's a feedback loop that doesn't really have any consistency. Um, you know, Alabama and Iowa have beaten the same team. Iowa on a, on a you know, road field and Alabama at a neutral site. Alabama also has a loss. Um, the team that Alabama lost to also lost to Memphis. Memphis is undefeated. But they're nine spots below Alabama. Like Stanford being as low as they are, there's just there's not enough here. Like you look at these rankings, and there's just there's problematic pieces of thinking. And and to me, this is even worse than the BCS quote unquote getting it wrong because they're the intent here is is to get it is supposedly to get it right and to do it better than the BCS. And I don't necessarily think it's doing that. Well, I mean, it has the inherent advantage of having two extra teams, so uh, it's always better to screw the number five, the number four team than the, or the number five team, I guess, than the number three. Um, but yeah, it's iffy, and and part of the problem is this year has been so crazy that there are still teams that are undefeated, and so many one-loss teams who are in the conversation. Like at this time last year, uh, obviously things got totally erased from that because the the first foursome was Mississippi State, Ole Miss, Auburn, and Florida State. Um, but even at that time, there were only like two undefeated teams. I think um, I think there were the two Mississippi schools, or or no, it was maybe it was Mississippi State and Auburn, and Ole Miss beat Alabama. Um, but it just seemed like things had were already a little more figured out at that time. Um, and obviously they have the three SEC schools, but you know you kind of knew it was going to work itself out. This year, there's just so much, like, there's just a giant cluster in, like, the top 12 or so that uh, I can understand why it's difficult to rank them. Um, but, you know, it, it, I, I get it. Like, I get why uh, it makes it hard. Um, but that being said, I don't think things are explained all that well, especially, like, when Jeff Lawn cites, like, a storm for why Notre Dame gets the benefit of the doubt. Um, but wouldn't, uh, wouldn't the storm, like, A, you could say, the storm makes that game um, harder to judge, but then Clemson would probably lose points. But then wouldn't the storm for Wazoo Stanford have the same effect on Stanford as it does for Clemson? And Wazoo is also a pretty decent team. So I don't know. There does, I, I agree. There, there seems to be some issues with consistency uh, in terms of how they figure things. I, I trust that we'll have enough figured out with direct on the field results by the end that it won't be too much of a cluster, but um I guess we'll figure it out because it's not like we have a ton of data to fall back on. Like, oh, they get it right all the time. Like, it's been one year. So hopefully they don't royally screw it up and, and make everyone long for the BCS because I think the BCS is pretty horrible. But um, it definitely uh, leaves something to be desired. And I feel like there just has to be a way they could simplify this all. And, you know, whether it's just expanding and, and having automatic bids and, or something and then maybe just figuring out one at large based on some stat, even if it's slightly flawed, at least you kind of know what you're working with. So I think there's some good points there. It just, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully by December, stuff kind of works itself out and makes it pretty easy on the committee because I don't totally trust them to uh, make the best choices when it gets to there. But um, 
Hopefully they won't have to. Yeah, I mean, and in general, like you and me and pretty much everybody else was rooting for chaos. And and we said, you know, the more undefeated teams, the better. The more unbeaten, you know, uh, group of five teams, the better. And right now we have that. Um, I, I think that, you know, and, and this, a lot of this will work itself out. And I think that's what everyone should keep in mind. And is, is I think especially as among, among writers seems to be keeping in mind. I mean, you, you look at this, this top 10 right off the bat, I mean, one of LSU and Alabama has to lose at least one more time. One of Ohio State and Michigan State has to lose at least one more time. Same goes for Baylor and TCU. Uh, on top of the, the Ohio State and Michigan State mentions, Iowa has to lose, or you know, one of those three teams has to lose at least once more. Um, same thing goes for Florida. You know, after the LSU Alabama, like th- there's enough here that says most of this sorts itself out. The only things you can probably bank on are that. You know, if Clemson wins this weekend, that's over. That's 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 locked up. Um, you, you're looking at Clemson. Um, they might not be the number one when it's all said and done, but, but Clemson could find itself very well find itself in you know w- w- with a victory uh, this weekend just because of the the upcoming schedule. And yes, I'm aware that includes Syracuse, um, and then everybody else really is going to have to fight it out um, in the couple games that you look at right away. The Ohio State-Michigan State game in, I think, a week or two. Um, the LSU-Alabama game this coming weekend. The Notre Dame-Stanford game uh, close to the end of the year. Utah kind of lurking. Um, if Utah can run the table and then beat Stanford in a, in a, Pac-12, North cha- in a Pac-12 championship game, uh, I think Utah uh, has the potential to be this year's Ohio State. Um, I mean, yes, their loss was later in the year, and it was also to a better team, to be honest, than last year's Hokies. I think Trojans are probably... St- could be an eight-win team despite the the tumultuous you know season it seems like they've had um so i I think that i think clemson's a good bet and i guess i'll use that as a jumping off point dan to who do you think you're you're, who's your top four now and who do you think the top four is at the end of the year um i i like the top three they have i think uh clemson lsu is probably the correct top two i'm fine with ohio state uh being in there just because I, i do think that they seem to have figured something out with Barrett, and I do not expect Barrett to miss more than one game, and I don't expect the game that he misses to be a big deal. Um, personally, I think I'd stick... Ugh, it's tough between TCU and Baylor. I think those two, obviously, they're they're in it, just forever paired together. Um, Baylor's defense worries me, but they're, when you're outstoring everyone else in the country by 10 points a game, like you're doing something very right. Um, TCU has had some... Some uh, early in the year they look kind of sloppy, but it seems like they're getting over that, and their TC their uh, defense is improving. I think I'd go with the Frogs, but um, I think it's very close between those two teams. And luckily, we'll we'll have that wonderful uh, Friday night game later in November to to figure that all out. So overall, I think it was pretty. They were pretty close. Uh, I just think Alabama being four is is pretty hard to defend when you're actually looking at existing results rather than what you think will end up happening because. I think we'll end up with Alabama winning the SEC if I had to bet. Um, but I think I think that's what I would go with right now. Um, but it, it's it's not easy because of how the, every team has some major flaw in their resume, pretty much, uh, aside from Clemson and LSU, I guess. Um, so hopefully things will will figure themselves out. Although chaos would also be fun. I actually I you brought up Utah. I wrote about them as one sleeper earlier this week and. Um, I almost think, like, if Utah gets back on track, I mean, that USC loss, 
you know, it, it wasn't pretty, but USC is a, a super talented team. You can kind of explain that one away if Utah winds up winning the Pac-12. Um, kind of similar to what you can do with Stanford, who you could almost uh, call Stanford the Ohio State, this team, because they lost to a, a gritty Northwestern They're a good team. Year, who, the Wildcats, are the, I mean, that's the yeah. thing. And I, and I said earlier, the Wildcats are a good team. Trojans are a good team. These are better teams than the Virginia Tech team that Ohio State lost to last year at home. <laughs> yeah. So that I mean, there's so much that can happen. Um, I think there's legitimately like I wouldn't count out any of the top twenty teams right now. I, I just think we we don't know enough about the playoff, and we know too much about college football to do that. Just because we've seen two lost BCS champions before. So um, I, I'm excited to see it play out. This weekend's great, like you said. Um, a number of just like Alabama, LSU, just obviously one of the the pinnacle games of the season based on what's happened so far. Um, Notre Dame Pitt should be really interesting because Pitt always plays them tough and should really throw a wrench. And I mean, it would pretty much it would become close to ending Notre Dame's playoff hopes and would throw another uh, would make the coast even more interesting than it already is, which is kind of silly to say, but true. Um, so yeah, this should be. I mean, after a couple weeks that weren't great on paper, but ended up being pretty interesting, I think this one has a chance to be both. Yeah. Also, why is why is Utah one and a half point dog at Washington? Um, That's I think well, people are over. Whoa. And this is why I'm skeptical of Baylor, although I'm pretty sure that was a holding penalty. <laughs> oh, there's the flag. Uh, I think you're like a second behind me. Yep. As soon as you said it, he was like just hitting the uh, the uh, hole just opened up. So clearly uh, you being closer to the Midwest is why you're so. ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what? I think the demarcation line for who's still in this uh, is probably 16 is kind of the floor. Um I don't buy Mich- I don't buy any of the, the two lost teams as being able to get themselves back in it enough, if only because there's so many undefeated and one lost teams in front of them. Um, I, yeah, I, I think, like I was saying, uh, Northwestern's probably an eight-win team. I see them finishing uh, second in, well, potentially second in the, uh, the Big Ten West. Uh, depends on what Wisconsin does. Uh, and then I see... Uh, What's it called? USC probably finishing second in the Pac-12 South, um, all things considered. I think that they can probably suffer a loss to UCLA, um, maybe another one along the way. And still, I think they have enough tiebreakers to, to, to do some damage there and probably finish second. Um, right now, I, I think the the top two are dead on considering what we've seen. I don't really have any qualms with Ohio State, though I'd prefer they weren't there um, at this juncture. Um, but yeah, I, I I think those three teams right now are fine, um, and then a fourth is probably TCU or Michigan State as of right now. Um, and again, I don't really think you can make an argument against any of these you know undefeated squads right now. Uh, down the road, um, I think Clemson. I think if Stanford runs through the table, I think Stanford's your number one, even with one loss. Um, I, of course, unless LSU wins out. I don't see LSU winning out. Um, so I think Stanford's your number one. I think Clemson's your two um, as an unbeaten. I think LSU's your three as the SEC champ. Um, and I think your four is the winner of the Ohio State-Michigan State game. Um, yeah, I, I have a feeling that the Big 12 is going to get screwed again, um, whether or not they... Uh, whether or not they have it unbeaten or not, uh, I just 
I have a bad feeling about what happens next. <laughs> um, and of course, the the funny part is, and, and I'm gonna have to go too far down this rabbit hole. Is imagine if the Big Twelve had decided to expand after last season and invited UCF. Uh, imagine what would hap- be happening right now if if UCF was was in waiting to go to the Big 12 after the season they're having right now. They might pull like a reverse TCU and uh, pull it. Like, uh, we're, we're on second thought. We'll take Memphis and Houston. No, but if they got left Memphis and Houston are headed to the Big 12. Yeah, if they got left out again, when when's the when are the invites going out? Like, December, uh, like, 8th? The, yeah, the day. The, I think the night... That that the rankings are released. They just invite like Cincinnati, Houston, BYU, uh, whoever else, Memphis to like some kind of a soiree and kind of a, make it like a dinner for schmucks thing where they judge them and figure out who they dislike the least as a group. Uh, I could very well see that happening. Yeah, they need to. Uh, I'd be, I'd be, I'd have a lingering worry if I was the Big Twelve um, because of this. Like, it's just so. There, there's just no guarantee that the way they scheduled, they they could very easily like devour themselves again. Like all, the back ended scheduling, it, it's going to be a lot of fun for us as non Big Twelve fans. All the games are in the last four weeks. It's the, crazy. The, the, there, there are two rules of college football if you're looking for a championship. Rule number one: Don't lose. Rule number two: If you're going to lose, lose early. <laughs> like, yep. And and for the Big Twelve to laugh at both of these concepts. All right. Wait. What? All right, wait, what, what is going on with wait, this kickoff? Wait, how did? What the? What the hell was that? Did they just onside kick from the opposing thirty? I'm, I'm confused. What? <laughs> I, I missed like why they were kicking off from there. How many penalties were there? That was crazy. I always forget how big McGowan is, and it's always terrifying. <laughs> like, if you're you're listening to this a day yeah, so, after, so whatever happens here, um, hopefully, hopefully, K State upset. Is be honest, this is exposing some things with Baylor's defense that we haven't seen up until this point. I mean, they're mostly that you can go on a nine minute drive. I mean, they're getting carved um, up right now. Yeah, the problem. Yeah, the problem is they store every drive. Yeah. Like. That that makes still, up. Still, I mean, it's it's thirty one seventeen. It's thirty one seventeen. The fourth quarter. They're they are very likely going to fall short of 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 fifty points. I mean, I don't even know if they're going to score forty here. It will it will take a it will hit their uh, their sixty point average a, a bit. But um, it's also Kansas State and Manhattan. Like I didn't expect Kansas State to come cl- too close, but it's not the easiest place to play. There's there's always some weird stuff that happens there, like that. That Auburn near upset last year. Yeah, I think uh, if you're going to have some Bill Snyder Wizard Magic, this was kind of the last uh, the last shot at it this season, in my book. It might be the last shot. It might be the last shot for a while. I don't know. I'd be almost surprised at this point if Bill Snyder's touching this team next. Really? Year. I mean, obviously, he's just going to yeah. retire because his name's on the building. Yeah, no, he's not going to go anywhere else. That's but, it. Um, I, I almost it, it feels like that. Too. Like Kansas State just. Some of the way, some of the way they've lost games, like they just don't have like what these other previous Kansas State teams have had. Like in terms of, it just seems like a team that could use a spark of some well, sort. Like what? But I also 
don't know what's going. I mean, he could also end up coaching like ten more years. So you never know with him. My so. thing with K State is like, I mean, I just think that they fall to the bottom of the list in terms of P five jobs that would be up for grabs. Um, and I think it, you bring you yeah, need, yeah you need to bring in request. somebody with like that gets the the culture there. And I just don't know if there's too many guys that can do. I I know one guy who could who who would understand the culture there. I'm not going to bring it up <laughs> for for fear of what happens on Twitter next. It's just, um, it's such a strange profile where they have had this pretty solid success for a long time, um, aside from the years that were pre and post Snyder. Um, but the way he builds teams is, is so different than pretty much every other school in the country. Uh, and there's just no natural recruiting ground, as Kansas will tell you. Um, it, it would be a, a real worry. Um, but then there's also, like, like, obviously he wants his son to be the, the, to get the job. If that, that'd be like if, if Penn State had hired Paterno's son. Like, yeah, he's on the staff, but he's, you know, there's nothing that says he's anything more than the coach's son. So they're in a weird spot. Um, so maybe he hangs on for as long as he can just to try to get them into a place where maybe they'll be a, a little more attractive. But Kansas State, definitely not the most attractive job because you're like, you're doing all of the, the following a legend, having to take over a job where there's like a very unique. Uh, situation in terms of recruiting and expectations are not crazy high, but they're not low. So uh, that that's it, it, that would be a very interesting opening. Um, and I don't know how it would really factor in to a year that's already full of them. But um, I, I guess we'll we'll see. There, he obviously nothing's been said, but it almost seems like like they just have been pretty flat this year and and. Simil- not not too dissimilar from what we've seen from like South Carolina this year. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good comparison. Um, I guess last question, then we can probably wrap up the podcast. Um, shit, what was I going to say? Oh, I remember now. Um, Nebraska. I feel like bringing up Kansas State. Kansas State has a very odd way of, of, of building a program, and I feel like it was based in part on what Nebraska did. Um, for a long time, and that is, you know, no local recruiting ground. Um, they had a lot more success and a lot more cachet involved, but, but in general, you know, Nebraska's done a lot of, of, of JUCO recruiting. Um, I, I think that in general, they just there's a different way to go about it. There's a different way to attract talent. Um, I mean, they do recruit well. I think much better than Kansas State has. But ten years from now, where do you see? The Cornhuskers as a program. Oh, that's tough. Oh, that's tough. Um, I think they still have that. They're still holding on to a name that was built in the '90s, which you know, it's not like they're the only school. We we see similar things with Miami. Um, they have some decent recent success, but obviously they expect a lot more. Um, I think that the big the, the move to the Big Ten. I won't outright say it was a, a bad idea. I get it. Uh, I, I think it's hard to not say – it's hard to, to say that it wasn't the right thing to do. But Nebraska's recruiting was very Big 12-focused. Like, they got a lot of Texas kids and, and a lot of kids that were playing from that area of the country. Um, and the Big 10 and the Big 12 just, uh, like, geographically, it's just not – they're not similar. Like, they, they're not as far apart as, like, you know, the ACC and the Pac-12, but – just very different styles and different, uh, like the teams just across the board. board, um, The recruiting areas are totally different. So 
It forces Nebraska to do more like stuff in Florida, which every team tries to do. And then you have a guy like Pelini who was, you know, not not burning the the world, uh, setting the world on fire, but you know, obviously all the jokes were about him being nine and four every year. But nine and four is not like the worst. I'd, place I'd to kill be. for nine and four. Uh, I would, yeah, I'd be great. I'd be great with that. Um, I, and and they hire Mike Riley, which was a really questionable hire at the time. Um, but you you figured at least you know he seems like a guy who could maintain some momentum, and it's totally fallen off a cliff. So I, I think it's hard to say you should fire a coach after one year like a lot of the Nebraska fans are. But uh, like we talk about with Schaefer sometimes, like Riley was, was definitely – he wasn't from Nebraska. He wasn't a, a guy from Pelini's staff or anything. But like he was the guy that was hired to uh, to elevate where Nebraska was because Pelini literally had the same record every pretty much every single year. Uh, almost to a T. Almost to a T. Um, they weren't hiring Mike Riley to go nine and four. Uh, they hired him to try to, which he'd only done with Oregon state once. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which, yeah. So, and you could say, you know, Oregon state doesn't have the same cachet as Nebraska. So maybe he can do better things here. He was also an older coach. Um, it wasn't like he had these like crazy steams or anything. And there were extenuating circumstances with Pelini as well. Yeah. He didn't Um, get along with the personality along with the athletic director. There was nothing that kept him. Yeah. All of that. But, like, it's hard to say that the Riley hire was anything but a, a disaster right now because, like, even if you fell behind by a win and you're set, you can you can sell that it's an adjustment and they'll they'll get back to where they were and hire a year or two down the road. But when you go from nine and four, nine and four, nine and four all the time to three and six, likely four and, and eight, you know, are they going to beat <laughs> Iowa? Yeah, like, are they they might finish with four wins. Like that—that's one situation where you're almost—you can almost understand where uh, fans will start to want to fire the coach after one year, because um, he's also not a very high. Like he doesn't seem like a huge high upside hire either. So uh, Nebraska is in a really strange situation. Obviously, their AD is now in some some turmoil along with Riley because that was his guy. Um, I would almost be surprised at this point if there weren't sweeping changes there in the next two years, just because I. I I don't look at that team and see one that's getting. I mean, obviously they've had some awful luck in terms of how some of the games have ended this year, but uh, eventually, you know, three and six, you can you can explain away a couple of games, but it's not like they've been blowing the doors off the teams in the wins. So, yeah, that's a that's an iffy situation for sure. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm stunned at what's transpired there, but not. Not as much so after the Riley hire. I think that Nebraska presents a really interesting situation. Um, they're like they're a handful. They're one of those handful of teams that might be better off as an independent. Perfectly honest, like they're just not. I mean, you brought it up perfectly. Like the recruiting stuff is much bigger than I think they ever thought. You're not going to be able to convince these kids in the Midwest who you're recruiting out of Chicago and Indianapolis and Detroit um, and Milwaukee and all these other like not that big cities, but I mean Chicago is. But in general, like these larger cities, like. When you were in the Big 12, you're recruiting from, hey, kid in the middle of nowhere in Kansas or Oklahoma or Nebraska or Iowa or Texas. Um, do you want to leave the middle of nowhere and come to middle of nowhere over here? Like, that, that that's one sell versus, like, now it's, hey, kid who's in Chicago, do you want to leave Chicago and, you know, not play at Notre Dame or not play at Ohio State or not play at Michigan? You want to come play in, you know, middle of nowhere in Nebraska? Like, middle of nowhere can, can sell if you're if you're – you know, banking on success, but the, the last Nebraska team to really matter got smoked in the, the Fiesta Bowl. 
Or was it the Fiesta Bowl or was it the Orange Bowl? Whichever game that they lost by a, a million points to Miami in. Uh, I think that was the Orange Bowl. Either, yeah, either, either way, that was, that a, was a long time ago. Like that, yeah, that was a long time ago. ago. Uh, Nebraska is in a really tenuous spot. I think if there was, not that I think it will happen, but if there was one team in the entire country out of the, those that shook out in the, the realignment fiasco of the last few years, if there's one team that probably wanted to go back and I could see going back to where it was, it, it would be Nebraska. And I feel like that's the main reason why the Big 12 isn't moving faster on getting new teams in. Yeah, I don't know. The, the other thing is that we don't ever hear, like, even the slightest whisper about that outside of, like, maybe a fan saying, hey, let's go back to the Big 12. So I don't see it happening. I, I just I just think there's, like, kind of a, you, you know, you can't put a pin back right. to the grenade type thing with conference realignment. Um, but if you asked, like, off the record, if some of the, 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 the principals there would want to undo what they've done, you know, Obviously, you're going to make more money in the Big Ten eventually once their ridiculous stipulations go up. But um, definitely probably a more, even if not more winnable in the Big 12, like Nebraska had a pretty good thing going there for a while um, outside of like, and, and when Nebraska wasn't good, it was because they made like a bad hire. Um, but in the Big Ten, it, it seemed like they had a definite ceiling uh, and they clearly weren't happy with that ceiling, and now they're finding that the floor is not all that high either. So, um, being a Nebraska fan, while you're probably a very pleasant person and have seen a lot of good football, uh, I can understand why they're kind of getting pretty ravenous based on the whole situation. Yeah. Ho. Oh. Sorry. Oh, you're definitely. Ahead. <laughs> Once again, reacting to a game in real time with Kansas State suddenly has Baylor on the ropes. Oh, Bill, Bill Snyder, Wizard Magic. The the, what is it with Magic and 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 teams from the Missouri and Kansas area? I don't know. This is a, that's a really nice catch. Yep. I don't know how he hung down. Hung I, I honestly think the sleeves help. No idea. Yes, John. John is the resident Baylor <laughs> hitter of podcast. I have no particular animus. No, honestly, I, I hate Baylor. Um, and I appreciate. <laughs> I, I hate Baylor because because I hate well, one as as anyone who has listened to me in either my college football or college uh, basketball talk. I hate nouveau riche fan bases, and I hate. Um, I, yeah, I think most of it's I hate nouveau riche fan bases. And on my old site, once I wrote an article saying, like, just joking around about like crazy ways in which realignment would never happen but could and i think somebody posted a link on a baylor site to one of my articles and basically like called me every name under the sun for an article that in the first paragraph says this isn't happening nor is it any realistic and for some reason i use that as my uh as my jumping off point to to disliking baylor fair enough i mean they were almost once kicked out of the Big 12, so I can kind of see where they'd be uh, a little emotional about that. I agree. Um, yeah, so this podcast is well over an hour now, <laughs> and we haven't really mentioned Syracuse the last 30 minutes, so it might be time to, uh, to call it a day. But Dan, um, as always, really appreciate you coming on. We had a, had a fun time as always. Yeah. And, and I'd like to point out before we go, 
And, and I'd like to point out before we go, um, and I will not have any more comment towards it because I didn't see any of it, but uh, it took Clemson basketball two overtimes to beat something called Len- <laughs> Lenore or Lenoir Ryan <laughs> in an exhibition. So uh, ACC basketball that's, coming at that, you. That's at least a win. We know we've got one this year. <laughs> I'll try to find out how to pronounce how to pronounce that Fair school enough. by next week. Uh, that was Dan. I'm John. This was Troy Noons, an absolute podcast. Uh, be sure to rate, review, subscribe on Blog Talk, on iTunes, and uh, go Orange this weekend. Go Orange. The Starlight Lounge presents an evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a -a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.